listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Look with me in our Father's Word. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. Get the picture? Exhaustive. Nobody is excluded from this. Or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. That's Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 12. Now, we turn to Luke chapter 13. Here's the context for what's taking place here, beginning in verse 10. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. The scene has now changed. Jesus is no longer preaching before thousands of people. He's preaching before a different audience now on the Sabbath in a synagogue, the Jewish place of worship. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant or angry, Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Three measures of flour, that's enough to feed about 150 people. 
a little bit of leaven put in three measures of flour would feed 150 people. The mustard seed, a, a very small seed, a mustard bush or a shrub, Jesus calls it a tree, would grow to about 10 or 12 feet in height. But it's significant that Jesus doesn't refer to it as a shrub because he's not talking about the average mustard bush or mustard shrub. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's giving a comparison, and he's saying that God is able to take something very small, seemingly insignificant, and grow it to epic proportions, not through mere natural means, above and beyond what you would expect something to be, God is able to make it exactly that, above and beyond what people expect. And so this is a parable about the kingdom of God. This is a teaching about the kingdom of God. It's a comparison and a contrast between a guy who's in a leadership position and the person who demonstrates real leadership. Look with me, verse 10. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues of the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Not all physical problems are merely physical problems. Not all physical problems are merely physical problems. Here's a woman who has a spirit of weakness. That would be the literal translation. A spirit of weakness. It's translated here in the ESV as a disabling spirit. That gives us an idea as to the degree of her weakness. She is so weak that she's bent over. She's the only one in the picture who has a posture of humility. She's the only one that's bent over, and we shouldn't be surprised that she is the one that Jesus reaches out to. Jesus recognizes this woman has a spirit of weakness, and this spirit has been harassing her for 18 years. Specificity in the Word of God, helping us understand that this is not a parable. This is not an allegory. This is not something that is to be taken figuratively. This is something that is to be taken literally. That there is a woman who has a demonic problem that has affected her physically in her body. Make sense? So we have to understand here from the Scriptures that it's very clear that not all physical difficulties, physical problems, are merely physical problems. There can be a spiritual element to a physical condition. And this is exactly that type of a situation where a woman has a demonic issue. Now, before you start thinking that there's a demon behind every sickness, not all physical problems have a spiritual root or a spiritual cause. Now, ultimately speaking, they do. It's when sin came into the world, that's a spiritual problem. Sickness came into the world. Difficulty and hardship came into the world. Death and everything that causes death came into the world. Some of you speculate, did great white sharks become violent after the fall? I don't know. Go Google it and listen to somebody who wants to speculate about it. I don't know. The point being that all sickness, which affects longevity, which has to deal with death, is and can be traced back to a spiritual cause. 
but we don't want to over-spiritualize things. You could be tired and sluggish because you're staying up too late. You could be eating the wrong foods. You could have marital problems because you're not treating your spouse the way you should be treating your spouse. You can pray all you want about your marital relationship changing when really the problem is really practically solved. The problem will be solved practically. And you're wondering, why do I have a cast iron fire, a frying pan in my hand when I'm talking about marriage and marriage difficulties? Some of you know exactly why I have a cast iron frying pan. <clears throat> which might not have been seasoned exactly the way it should have been seasoned. You can look at it. See, this, mur- this morning, this morning, early this morning, I was scraping this thing because yesterday we had an omelet in this cast iron frying pan. And uh, it needed to soak a little bit to loosen up what was in the frying pan. And so this morning I was scraping it, doing something very spiritual, as I'm getting ready to preach the Word of God this morning to you. And I was scraping this frying pan, and I went upstairs. My wife could hear me scraping the frying pan because those of you who have cast iron cooking pots know that when you clean them, you can't be quiet. They make noise if you burn something in it, okay? And I went upstairs, and Janet was still lying in bed, as she has every right to do. But I woke her up. And she said, thank you for cleaning out that frying pan that neither of us really wanted to clean. I said, honey, I wasn't cleaning the frying pan. I was working on our marriage. Now, not that my marriage needs particularly more work than anybody else's. This is not about my marriage. It's really about your marriage. You can pray for God to change your marriage all you want. Go clean the frying pan. Not everything has a super spiritual, hyper spiritual solution to it. If you want to have a closer relationship with your spouse, do some menial things. Do some things that you don't like doing. Did I wake up this morning as I was thinking about preaching the Word of God and think, I'm going to get up and clean that frying pan? I forgot that it was even in the sink. And to be honest with you, I actually tried to spiritualize excuses as to why I didn't need to be the one cleaning this frying pan. Could I recruit one of my two sons to maybe do that? Could I get the pressure washer out and have an excuse to go use it as a man? So you don't over-spiritualize things. There might be some very practical things that you need to do in your family, in your life, that have very little to do with demonic entities, okay? Don't blame the devil for things that you can change. Yes, pray. Yes, be humble. Yes, examine what's happening in your life and ask the question, could this be spiritually caused or could it be because I need to clean the frying pan? Now, some of you are asking a very practical question, I know. You're saying, well, how do we know whether or not something is spiritually caused? How do we know? This woman, Jesus, knew that this, this gal was harassed for 18 years with a spirit of weakness that affected her hindered her whole life to the point of which she was bent over, ending up being a posture of humility and reverence before the Lord, a broken and contrite heart. The Bible says God will in no ways cast out. How do you know whether something is spiritually caused or whether it's just something that you need to practically do something about? Well, number one, you need to pray. You need to pray, and particularly pray that Jesus would come against whatever it might be. 
Number two, you also need to examine, is there anything that I need to do in my life, practically speaking? Do I need to clean the frying pan? Do I need to do something that is within my ability, within my capacity to change? Do I need to behave differently? Do I need to think differently? Do I need to say something? Do I need to shut up? Do I need to apologize? Do I need to have a posture of humility? How much humility is enough? Just a little more. But if in your circumstances in life, you're doing all that you can, practically speaking, you're tired, you're fatigued, and you're starting to eat better, and you're working out, and you're exercising after consulting your doctor, and you're making practical changes, and you're cleaning your frying pan, and you're doing all that you can on your part, and things don't change, and you begin to pray warfare prayers against the enemy, and things begin to change, it could be a very good, clear indication that there is a spiritual dimension behind the problem. Do not make excuses for the role that you play in the changes that might need to take place in your marriage, in your workplace, in your community. But also don't assume that all physical issues merely have a physical problem. Do not assume that all psychological issues are merely psychological problems. Sometimes we need to press in and pray hard and pray warfare prayers, bringing this same Jesus into the picture, who alone is the great physician, whether a solution can be provided through medical means or through supernatural means. But don't assume that all physical problems have a merely physical root. They don't. Now here what's interesting is the nature of this healing in verse 13. Now, let's go to verse 12 first. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. Notice the intentionality of Jesus. Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, knows what the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching about work. See, when Jesus brings up this idea and says, you're hypocrites, you're misguided, inept people in leadership positions incapable of taking people where they need to be. That's the biblical understanding of what a hypocrite is. Somebody who's in a position of influence, in a position of leadership, in a position of knowledge, and does not lead the other people where they should be. When Jesus brings up this idea of the Sabbath, Jesus says, you're hypocrites. Don't you allow for the untying of your animal on the Sabbath day to give it some water? You see, what had happened is the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the lawyers, had to interpret Deuteronomy chapter 5. What constitutes work? What constitutes work on the Sabbath? And one of the things that they had allowed for is that you could water your ox or your donkey. You could water your animal, as we see in verse 15, and you could lead it to water. You could untie your animal, lead it to water to care for your animal. That was okay. But healing on the Sabbath, not okay. Considered work. Jesus understood the context. He understood what they were going to get upset about, and yet Jesus wades into that water intentionally. 
Jesus sees the woman's condition in the synagogue on the Sabbath and says, come over here. Not only does Jesus do that, but look at what he does. Verse 13, he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. He laid his hands on her, no mistake about it. I am the one through whom this healing will occur on the Sabbath in the synagogue. I want you to see exactly what I am doing. I want you to connect the dots. I am being intentional. Jesus being a very intentional leader as the Messiah wants them to pay attention, wants them, watch what I do. Come over here, hands on, immediate healing. What is the statement that's being made? I am the Messiah. I am the deliverer of Israel. The hand of the creator, the hand of Yahweh is upon me. You should be recognizing ruler in the synagogue that God's hand is on me. Jesus is being intentional. Notice that the healing is immediate. There are some today who believe that we should be doing the same types of things and there should be immediate recovery. Sometimes God can do things miraculously, instantaneously. I get concerned when people say that in every instance, things must be immediate. We don't see that all the time in the scriptures. Now, one of the classic instances that I point to, some of, some of you listening by podcast, you're all hot and bothered right now that I'm saying that. Well, when we read the book of Acts, it's immediate this and immediate that, and handkerchiefs laid on people and shadows falling and people are healed and demons are coming out. Well, I have no problem with you wanting to do the same thing. Let's go to the hospital. If you have the faith that God's going to do that through you and God told you that he's going to heal people instantaneously through you, more power to you. Would you just give me the privilege to have a front row seat? I'm, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying that I think you're misinterpreting the purpose of the miraculous, which is to authenticate the identity of Jesus. Many miraculous signs were being done in the book of Acts chapter 2 by the apostles. By the time Paul writes Timothy... He says, mix a little wine in with your water because of your frequent stomach illnesses. Paul, why didn't you send him a holy handkerchief? Why didn't you just make a trip, pray for his instantaneous healing? Why didn't you tell him you should just believe God to be taken care of? Because we see, I think very clearly in the scriptures, that the reason why people are healed instantaneously at times is to authenticate the messenger. This was something that the ruler of the synagogue, like the Pharisees and the scribes, should have been able to recognize in the ministry of Jesus, that the Messiah, his ministry, would be accompanied with miraculous signs and wonders that no mere mortal could do. That's the whole point. So are we saying that God cannot do miraculous things today? Absolutely not. May it never be. He is God. What we don't want to do is put words in God's mouth and additional teaching into the scriptures that in every instance, anybody, anywhere can call on the name of the Lord and that person must be instantaneously healed. Does that make sense? This happens here to authenticate the identity of Jesus. 
that Jesus is so significant that even somebody who has a demonic affliction for 18 years, that demonic force, that demonic entity, that spirit that is causing something that kept this woman in bondage to affect her physical ability to stand upright, the spiritual issue was so significant it affected her physically. It's here to help us understand that even a demonic entity that can hold somebody in bondage for 18 years is no match for the Messiah. And you know what? If God doesn't heal you instantly, he didn't heal me instantly when I had cancer, but he did heal me. If God doesn't bring immediate healing in your life and immediate change in circumstances, he is always in the process of developing character. Character, 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 testimony, dependence upon God, the aroma of Jesus. Don't waste your failures. Don't waste your difficulties. Don't waste your hardships. It is up to God to determine the timing and the circumstance of anybody's healing. It is up to us to give God the glory and to make something beautiful out of the life that we live outside of Eden. Can I get an amen for that? So not all physical problems are merely physical. Notice not all people in a leadership position exercise leadership. This is a hard one. Not all people in a leadership position exercise leadership. What do I mean by that? Look here, verse 14. But here's this group of people in the synagogue have seen with their own eyes, and the implication is that it's not just the ruler of the synagogue who has a problem, because Jesus uses the plural when he says, you hypocrites. But the ruler of the synagogue, the leader, who should have known better, is the biggest hypocrite of all, because he does not know how to lead the people in the direction of Jesus. Here they were in the place of worship, where they should have been acknowledging the Messiah, expecting and anticipating a movement of the Spirit of God. Listen to me. If you can't anticipate a movement of the Spirit of God in the house of worship, then let's go home. We're all in big trouble. You come to this church, and hopefully if you're listening in podcast, you go to your church or house of worship because you're anticipating a movement of the Spirit of God. And the people in leadership positions are there to facilitate the movement of God. That is why God places somebody in a leadership position. But do not make the mistake of thinking that because you might be in a leadership position that you are leading the way Jesus wants you to lead. You might not be, but you must. You might be a missionary on the foreign field, being a missionary on the farm field does not mean that you are an effective missionary leading people into the presence of Jesus. You might be an elder in a church or a deacon in a church. It does not mean because you have the title that you are leading effectively 
the way you should. You could be a ruler in the synagogue. It does not mean that you are therefore ruling and leading the way you should be. You could be the lead pastor of a church, the senior pastor of a church. It does not mean, see, I'm putting myself up there first and foremost. It does not mean that because you are the leader of the church, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, it does not mean that because you're the leader of the church, the lead pastor, the senior pastor, that that makes you an effective leader. You must make choices. Leaders make choices. Spiritual leaders make choices that affect the people who are following them. In your household, clean the frying pan. In your household, assume the leadership that God has given you. Given you Just because you're married does not mean you have a beautiful, wonderful marriage. Many of us have learned that the hard way, haven't we? No, being married gives you the opportunity to have the reflection of God's love, Christ's love for the church, and to be able to understand the love of the church for Jesus because that's what marriage is. It's an object lesson of the love that God has for his people and the love that God's people have for their God. That's what marriage is. Do not assume that simply because you're in a leadership position. I would be foolish to do that myself, that that makes me a leader any more than this synagogue ruler was a leader who should have been facilitating the movement of the Spirit of God and was squandering it. The ruler of the synagogue, look at how he handles the situation. Indignant, angry because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which you ought to be done, in which work ought to be done. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. He says this to all the people, and nobody seems to take issue with it except Jesus, because Jesus understood that this guy was a hypocrite, the biggest hypocrite of them all, because he should have been leading people into the very presence of Jesus. He should have been leading people to acknowledge Jesus. He should have been flexible enough. He was very rigid, flexible enough to accommodate the movement of the Spirit of God. Thirdly, do not mistake a ministry for a real ministry. Don't mistake what you say what you say is a ministry for the kind of ministry that Jesus says we should have. See, all ministries should be characterized as movements of God. All ministries. See, the difference between a movement and a ministry, ministry is maintained, typically speaking. A ministry is something that is managed. It's something that we're able to get our hands around, get our heads around and there are little interruptions, Jesus was upsetting the apple cart. This is the Sabbath. Hey, Jesus, do you understand what day of the week it is? Do you understand Deuteronomy chapter 5? Do you understand how we have interpreted the law? That's where it all starts falling apart. That's where the wheels start falling off the cart. The problem is their interpretation of the law. They were straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Jesus takes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you understand that, the, that it's kind and gracious and loving to give water to your animal on the Sabbath, and that's not work, then why is it that 
when God shows up in your very midst and is moving in power and setting a daughter of Abraham free, one of your own people, one of our own people, you're calling that work? Isn't it ridiculous? You don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand that. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to be an elder or a deacon or a pastor to understand that. It's absolutely ridiculous. This guy, this ruler, was so concerned about his ministry and the rigidity, he was completely blinded to the miraculous thing that he just witnessed. He doesn't say, I doubt that this miracle happened. I don't believe it's a real miracle. In fact, I think she's still sick. I don't believe any of that. He doesn't, he doesn't debate at all with the authenticity of the miraculous healing of this woman. He accepts it. That's the irony. That's the hypocrisy. I recognize that something supernatural just happened here, but doggone it, it's the Sabbath. Hey, people, what is it with you this Sabbath? See, not all ministry is really ministry the way God designed it. Not all ministry is a movement of God. Not all ministry accommodates the movement of Jesus, but it must. It must. It must. There's a very real sense in which if we are following Jesus, things change. If Jesus begins to move in our midst, we must move with him. There are changes that happen. There are practical matters that happen. There is this idea of ministry and ministries accommodating the main thing, which is what Jesus says here. Verse 16, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Loosed from this bond. The purpose of all ministry is to set people free. As many people free as possible. As he said these things, all his adversaries, by the way, that's the plural of what's used in regard to the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 4, our adversary. It's the same word that's used. All his adversaries, how ironic that Jesus' adversaries were there in the synagogue where God should have been moving, where the people should have been taught to expect the movement of God and to move with God. The people should have been taught to expect the movement of God and to move with him. And here is where the adversaries are. You'll always have people who never get, who don't understand the idea of moving with God, moving with God, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus is being very deliberate. He's being very practical. He's being very intentional in his leadership. He's not letting anything hinder. And we have to understand that when people are loosed, what happens is Jesus says in verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that grows into a tree. It's like a little leaven that goes into a few measures of flour and can feed more people than you could dream possible. It expands. Healthy things grow. The kingdom of God advances and we will always have people who don't understand that, who think that they understand it. They're in the synagogue. 
They're in the place where we should be seeing and recognizing the movement of God, and yet they don't understand it. Earlier this month, a significant thing happened. You might have heard of a pastor by the name of Andy Stanley. Have you heard of Andy Stanley, son of Charles Stanley? He has five campuses in North Point Ministries, North Point Church. Andy Stanley started that. There's, there are now over 30,000 people, over 30,000 people that every Sunday hear Andy Stanley preach. His television show has over a million viewers every single week. Well, earlier this month, Andy Stanley tweeted a little bit. How many of you tweet? You have a Twitter account. And Andy Stanley created a controversy because he tweeted about revival in what seemed to be a negative way. Now, you know that that caught my attention because I've spent a lot of time studying revival. I've been in real revivals. I'm not talking about the kind of meetings we have down south where we plan them for five, six days and say we're going to have a revival meeting. I'm talking about the one the Spirit of God falls and convicts and moves and people's lives are changed and transformed and people end up evangelizing as a result, that type of revival. But here's what he actually tweeted. He said, praying for revival equates to blaming God for the condition of your local church. Why not call the church to pray for things that Jesus and the New Testament writers prayed for. Why add revival to the list? Now, this upset me at first when I read it because I thought, what, is he down on revival? How can Andy Stanley be down on revival? And then he said, churches that need reviving most are the very churches that resist it most. Boy, that really hurt me as we have been praying for revival as a church, haven't we? We've been asking God to bring mighty spiritual awakening in this country because we need it. Our time is desperate. But he was interviewed, Andy Stanley was interviewed by the Christian Post, and they asked him to define what he meant by revival. Andy Stanley acknowledged that he was speaking in terms of local revival. The Georgia megachurch pastor, and he also explained that he wanted to draw attention to the revival-like growth and atmosphere at a particular church in South Carolina. As the son of a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Stanley explained much of the frustration evident in his tweets stemmed from growing up in Southern Baptist churches, listening to church leaders pray for quote-unquote revival while being unwilling to make the organizational changes necessary to reach people. Now follow me on this. Stanley said, I love the local church. And I'll admit, I get a bit stirred up when I hear church leaders talk about the need to reach more people while refusing to make the changes necessary to actually get the job done. What job done? Loosing people, freeing people up. Stanley went on to say, so when a church says, we want to see our church do something. We want to baptize more people. We want to reach our city. And then church consultants or smart people go in and say, basically, you need to make organizational changes, procedural changes, look at your processes. And the church turns around and says, we can't do any of that. Well, my reaction to the whole revival terminology is that, you know, you know what? Instead of praying for that whole quote-unquote revival, there are some very practical things churches could do to reach their communities. When asked about his thoughts on the decline of baptisms in the Southern Baptist Convention, this is really wise of him, Stanley was quick to say since he's not a Southern Baptist, he should probably not express judgment. 
Later in the interview, Stanley added, there are a bunch of great Southern Baptist churches doing a phenomenal job reaching people in their community, but when you look closely at those churches, you discover several things they have in common. They are led well. They are organized around systems that free people to use their gifts. They are vision-centered, and the preaching is practical and gospel-centered. Stanley said that he's been criticized on occasion for suggesting that a church's success could be built on the shoulders of man, leaving little room for the assistance of the divine. But he rejects that criticism. He said, quote, that's not what I believe, and here's why, said Stanley. The Apostle Paul gives us a model for how the church is to function. He says the local church is a body, and when every single member functions like they're supposed to function, it paves the way for great things to happen. Paul used the phrase gifts of the Spirit. When believers leverage their spiritual gifts for the sake of the gospel, that's a Spirit-led endeavor. I have a hunch that if every believer, and I, believe, I, believe, I agree with them, if every believer leveraged their gifts along with the other believers in their community, there would be, in fact, a revival of epic proportion. It's not either or. The organizational side of church is absolutely key to getting things done, he said, and I don't think that's unspiritual. Applying what Paul taught can look a bit corporate, but what happens as a result goes way beyond what an organization can accomplish. People's hearts are changed. Only the Spirit of God can do that, but for reasons known only to Him, God chooses to work through us as we work together. That's why there's nothing like the local church. And then he went on, ironically, to say, but how do you say that in 140 characters? That's the limitation of when you tweet. You have 140 characters to get your point across. I'm glad that he was misunderstood because it's led us to a discussion about change and transformation and the main thing being the main thing. We have a 2,200-seat auditorium that, yes, I envision being filled one day, Lord willing, soon. I won't apologize for that. I can't. Why would we want to not have this auditorium filled? Are you blessed by what's happening here at the church? Are you blessed? I do envision multiple services with 2,200 people at each services and a children's program that's overflowing and children getting saved and teens getting saved. I envision that happening here. We have a 30-acre campus. I envision a professional recording studio where a song like Hallelujah that was written by Greg Thomas and maybe somebody else on the worship team, they wrote that song, can be professionally recorded and the music can go out to all of the world where people then can use the music that was written here on this campus. I make no apology for that. Why? Because to him whom much is given, much is required. God has given us a 30-acre campus with a 40-plus thousand square foot facility so that we can fill this place and do what? Help the main thing be the main thing, which is to loose people who are bound by Satan so that the mustard seed that is planted grows up to become a huge tree so that a little leaven goes through the whole batch in a good way and that this actually is a church of local, regional, national, and international impact. How about that? We are intentionally interviewing and hopefully recruiting a next steps pastor who handles assimilation and following up the new believers. For example, the 300 plus people who have accepted Christ in the past year and a half 
We need somebody. That's great. Yes. That is why we are intentionally hiring and organizing and developing processes unapologetically because we realize that we might want to sing about the Holy Spirit, come and fill, in, come and fill the atmosphere, come move and change, but we must move with Him. We must make hires that accommodate the movement of the Spirit of God. We want to bring on a student ministries pastor so that we could have 300 or 400 teens on a weekly basis each week coming, getting saved, bringing their teenagers so that this is worth the trip, that they would come into a a suburb area and invite their friends and hear the Word of God and worship through music and be transformed, and then go out into their areas and change their schools. So we're intentionally looking for a man who was led by the Spirit of God, who is highly gifted, who has that mix, who can head up the student ministry. We're doing the same thing with our children's ministry unapologetically. We want a children's ministry pastor who has the gifts of organization, who has a pastor's heart, who loves people, who loves children, who can rock and roll with the Spirit of God and be part of this movement that this really is. So we're intentionally hiring and looking to hire that type of a person. Even our audiovisual team lead has to be a man of character, a godly person who understands a movement that, yes, unapologetically, we want to fill this place. It is not just about the numbers. It is about depth. But make no mistake about it, depth is what creates the ability to have the numbers. There must be quality. There must be depth. Depth creates breath. There must be intentionality in the same way that Jesus went over to the, called the woman over to him, laid his hands on, on the Sabbath, and said, be healed. And the woman was instantaneously healed. Jesus intentionally did that. Good leadership facilitates the movement of the Spirit of God. Puts a lot of weight on my shoulders, does it not? Puts a lot of weight on the shoulders of our elders, does it not? On our deacons, you better be praying for us. Why? Because it is about numbers. It is. It is about people getting loosed from Satan. It is. It is not about merely having ministries. It is about doing the ministry of Jesus and accommodating him and inviting him to move and moving with him and with wisdom and integrity and fearlessness and deliberate intentionality, making decisions so that we don't find ourselves being hypocritical, asking Jesus to move, and Jesus begins to move, and we begin to back off and say, stop it, I can't take this. I'm trying to give you a flavor of where we're going as a church so that you can roll up your sleeves and get excited. The water is fine. We need some of you to become parking lot greeters, not because we think that you might be gifted in it, not because you woke up this morning and said, I wish somebody would approach me and ask me to be a parking lot greeter, But would you be willing to park cars if it meant that more people would be loosed from the bondage that they're in from Satan? Then go to the information desk and tell them, I want to park cars. 
Would you be willing to say hello to somebody in the, at the Welcome Center or be a greeter and be a smiling face to shine the light of Jesus and being thankful for what he's done in you, even though you might not be somebody who's wishing and praying and hoping that somebody would ask you to be a greeter? Would you be willing to greet people if it meant that that would facilitate a movement of the Spirit of God? Would you be willing to volunteer in Club Congo in our children's ministry? Would you be willing to get involved in the lives of children so that children who grow up in wacky families, more and more of them today, who are held in bondage because nobody wants to clean the frying pan, would you be willing to say, Lord, if it means children being loosed and set free, and this church being the kind of ministry that's characterized as a movement, I will do it. Go over to the information desk out in the atrium today and say, sign me up for the movement of God. And if you're listening by podcast, there are needs and issues in your church and in your ministry where God wants you to be a leader who truly leads and facilitates the movement of God. Get with the program. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.